Welcome to 5460, the Joe West Podcast. Featuring former Major League Baseball umpire Joe West. For six decades, no one has seen more baseball than Joe West. And now he shares those stories with you every week right here on the Podcast Heat Network. is asking the Reds to leave the field. I guess maybe as a form of security. Well, Joe West is not going back behind the the catcher. So what is he doing? He he wants to throw him out or what? He's not going to back away from confrontation. It's just not in his makeup. Which guy are we talking about back in the way? Well, come to think of it, hey, it's both guys. And they're warning the Atlanta dugout now. A helmet came flying out. Bobby Cox, I don't think, threw the helmet. One of his players did. Bobby's jawing back at Joe West. But somebody's been tossed, and here comes Cox. It was Bobby Cox who threw the helmet out there. Off the umpire, and that's a foul ball. Joe West gets drilled, and he appears none the worse for it. He's a strong man. (laughs) Nice. Now Joe's going to give him some argument because Mark's saying, why do you do? Joe, just get over there and umpire, will you? Just get over there and umpire. That's all. It's 5460, the Joe West Podcast. Here's Joe West and your host, Mike Claiborne. Hello, everyone, and welcome to 5460, the Joe West Podcast. I'm Mike Claiborne, along with Joe West. And, Joe, we have a very special guest, a gentleman who is in the, the writer's wing of the Baseball Hall of Fame. He's covered baseball for 50 years. He's seen it all and done it all. I bet he has a story or two about you. Yeah, I told him not to tell all he knows. Well, we'd be here all day if that's the case. Rick Hummel of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. I didn't bring a change of clothes here. <laughs> Rick Hummel of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, a well-known writer, affectionately called the Commish by all of his friends and family. It's great to see you, sir, and welcome. My pleasure to be involved with you fellows here. This will be fun. So how far do you two go back? Uh, mid-70s, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when did you start? 76? 75? Well, I, my first game here was in 77. Yeah. So. And I was and uh, I was here. I, I did my first game in 73. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, I learned early on what how, <laughs> how fast to drink those snake bites, you know. <laughs> <laughs> or, or how fast to drink whatever I had so I wouldn't be buying the snake bites. <laughs> so what was your first encounter with Joe? Well, it it probably was at the at, at the, the Missouri Mo Bar, Bar and Grill. Grill. Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah. and uh, encounters a little strong. It was a, a meeting. There were some encounters yeah. later on, but uh, uh, making acquaintance, yeah. And uh, you know, almost all the umpires went in there then in those days before the grill took on maybe uh, sort of an unsavory reputation to some of the umpires. I, I think was probably deemed. Not a place to go, but that didn't bother you any. No. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, you know, for you, and, and the reason why you knew the Mo Bar, or Mo, Missouri Bar and Grill, because it was right across the street from the Post Dispatch. Well, it was close. It was across from the Globe, actually. And, and we had a bar across from our place called the Press Box, but the Press Box closed. And, and each paper drank at its own place. We didn't go to the Mo Bar while the, while the Globe was still publishing, and we had the Press Box. When the Press Box went out of business, we had to go somewhere else. And so we mixed it up with the Globe people over there. Then the Globe folded, and we had our had all bar to all yourself. ourselves. Yeah. <clears throat> Joe, and that's one thing about you as an umpire. You really didn't have a chance to go to the bars where the players were. That Talk about that. Is it an unwritten rule where guys know if, if I'm here first, you have to go somewhere else? How does that work? Well, I just think it's like the officers and the enlisted men. You know, you have uh, your own your own hangouts, and uh, you don't really socialize with those guys. I mean, I would see ball players a lot – in the off season at golf tournaments and fundraisers and stuff like that. But normally, in fact, uh, you got me into that nice award uh, here that the sports writers put on for meritorious service. That's right. That's right. And all you proved was that I was older than everybody else. You know, I mean, it was. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, we had to call it something. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I think the only guy upset was Tim McCarver where I, where I made the statement that Tim went out to the mound to talk to Gibson. He said, get back behind the plate because the only thing you know about pitching is you can't hit it. And and so... <laughs> he did say that. <laughs> I just told the truth. Yeah, right? <laughs> you know, I, I, I learned early on, I guess, or it, it, it became apparent to, to us that, that the umpires and the reporters were both not necessarily enemies of the players, but we weren't their friends. You know, we, we were... The umpires and reporters were much closer than than either of the other two were to, to us. You know, I mean, um, so that was that was a good place for us just to kind of we had something to vent about, you know, with about the players or or Joe and his umpire friends about about us or about that we we do it that way. I and mean, the players wouldn't even be involved. You know, we uh, we didn't want them to be involved. We didn't want them to know what was going on, what was going on there. And, and you know, for you guys to sit there, Kevin, when did that start, Joe? Rick, was that something that took place? umpires around the game with no reporters and writers um was that something that just recently started to unfold well the the first time i got to know umpires was when i was coming downstairs with jack buck one time after a game and the clubhouse was to the right of the elevators as we, we came in at bush stadium too and if you go a little farther through another set of doors was the umpires room and then and and now I think it was almost like you had skull and crossbones, no entering, you know, the umpires' room, and and Jack says you ought to go introduce yourself to the umpires. You're going to be doing this. They they want to know if you want to know if something happened in a game. If they know who you are, they'll they'll tell you. So I thought really it says you can't go in. I said ah bolo, you know or whatever. And uh, so I, I I got I knocked on the door and I forget which umpire and crew was there that first night, but they welcomed me in and and each succeeding crew did. I always. When a new came in t- crew came in town, I'd knock on the door and, and come on in. And that's how it worked. And then when plays, when weird plays came up during the game or during the season, uh, I could go down and get whatever information I needed. Now, yeah. I, at times I had to be a pool reporter because other people wanted to know the information too. Yeah. And I, I felt I really didn't want to share it, but I was kind of obligated to it you, at that point. You remember a chopper from the Dodgers. Bob Hunter, yeah, yeah. sure. <clears throat> and Bob used to tell his 
all the writers, he was the senior writer out there in Los Angeles, and he'd tell all, all the writers that wrote for the local, and they had dozens of writers, you know, and he would tell them, he says, if you haven't introduced yourself to the umpires, how do you expect to get a statement from them after the game? So all of his guys, from Mouse to Gordy Varell to Terry Johnson, all those guys would... Joe Beck, Gordon Eads. Yeah, yeah well, they'd all come in, knock on the door, say hello before the series started. So them in L.A. and here in St. Louis, we knew who the riders were. And so when they'd come knock on the door, it wasn't like Jerry Crawford saying, uh, no comment, you know. And Jerry, Jerry wouldn't talk to his mother after a game. But, <laughs> but even he invited me in one time at that. He was doing the game when in New York when Robin Ventura hit that home run to end the game and we weren't sure if he passed anybody on the bases was it a home run it was enough to win the game but what was the final score was it seven to six was it eight to six you know against yeah. the, against the Braves and he invited me in that particular night to to explain what had happened yeah. and but so but most guys were, were like Joe or I remember there was a game here and McSherry was was the chief and there was a bunch of people gathered outside and he kind of peers over and he sees me. I had gotten down there late. Yeah, you know, in the back. He said, "Hummel, get in here." And so I just, <laughs> I just bypassed the line. <laughs> it's good to know people. Yeah. Well, it's what what did uh, Eddie Matthews said? He says you don't make the Hall of Fame by hitting five hundred and twelve home runs. You make the Hall of Fame by buying those riders drinks. <laughs> 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 who, who did you? I'll ask you, Joe. Who did you have the most contentious relationship with as a writer? And Rick, who did you have the most contentious relationship with as an umpire? Go ahead, Joe. Yeah, I don't think I, I, Joe Madden ever liked me. <laughs> the guy in New York, when I when I criticized the Red Sox and Yankees for playing slow. It was the only time he ever complimented me. He said, I don't agree with Joe S. on anything except this point. They play too slow. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can honestly say I didn't have any contentious situations with any umpire that I can remember off the top of my head. As we go along, maybe something will hit me. But, I mean, think of the guys that were there when I came up, you know, that were already established. John Kibler was, was always out there available. Uh, Jerry Crawford. Uh, Bob Engel, you know, Jerry Davis later on, Joe, um, uh, John McSherry, of course. I spent many hours with John McSherry. Uh, and I, I don't think I had uh, Terry Tatum, uh, uh, all of them, you know. I didn't, yeah. I, we didn't know the American League guys, so maybe I would have had some trouble with some of them. And some of the guys in the American League, when, when they melded them, I didn't know them very well, so I didn't have the same maybe yeah. access that I would have had with some of the other guys. But the... Uh, the National League guys were all tremendous, and, and you could see they were better, too, when you got to postseason play. I, I don't know why that was. If you just had better talent and you had a better understanding of what the job was entailing, I guess. But the American League guys would always get seem to screw things up when they got to a World Series or something. Well, Joe, that's an interesting point you make, Rick. And, and Joe, clarify why we had American League umpires compared to National League umpires. And as Rick just mentioned, the National League umpires appeared to be maybe a notch better. How, if they're all going to the same school, and I, I assume that they did, why do we have one batch that was different than the other? Well, I, that's that's a subjective statement uh, to say that we were better than they were, but uh, I think that uh, I think a lot of it had to do with who was running them. You know, uh, like I said, Cal Hubbard was the, Nas the American League supervisor and Barlick was the National League supervisor. Cal Hubbard was a big football player. He believed that 
you know, like we said earlier, that if uh, you were a big guy, you had to prove you couldn't umpire. And if you were a little guy, you had to prove you can. And uh, but Barlick believed just the opposite. And uh, it was uh, some of it is the way they're backed by their front office. You know, the American League did not back their umpires. There are situations where I'll, I'll give you the best example was the George Brett home run. The umpires made the right ruling, and the office overturned it. So how does that help you in your uh, doing your job when doesn't matter what you do, they're going to change what you did anyway? That's not right. You can't do that. You have to back your people. And uh, one of the first uh, conversations I had with Joe Torrey when he took over as as uh, the supervisor or director of umpiring was that uh, these guys will. If you back them up, they'll run through a brick wall for you. But if you don't back them, they'll quit on you because they're not athletes. They can't hit a home run to make up for an error. So you need to back them up whether they're right or wrong. doesn't matter. And, and he got that. He, he, heard, he knew that from the beginning. And I used to tell Manfred, I said, every golf professional has a million-dollar coach. He pays a million dollars for a coach. The umpires don't have a coach. Don't tell me I missed a play. Tell me why I missed it. And, it. and he got that. He understood that. But nobody else in the room could figure that out. You know, so it, may, it, may, it does make a difference. You know. Now, you, you always told me you, you never missed a play. You didn't get them all right, yeah. but you never missed them. I was, was, out, I was out there for all of them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you guys have been around for a long time. You've seen a lot and done a lot. When was there the golden era of umpiring where the umpiring in in Joe you may have been part of it you may have walked into it Rick uh, I'll ask you the same question as far as writing is concerned and, and it may not have been 20 year period it may have been 10 it may have been 5 it may have been 12 I don't know but when you think about the state of the game and what you did as an umpire and Rick what you've done as a writer when was the golden era for you guys well I would say for me it was pretty much when I started in the 70s, early 80s, and you had so many papers, not as many teams, but so many papers. A lot of guys, like Joe said, there was probably, L.A. Dodgers probably had 10, 11 guys covering them. Some papers don't even exist anymore, like Pasadena and the Herald Examiner and a, and a few others. But, and you always have these, always have these great columnists too, like, they didn't have to, to take an interest in me, but Red Smith and Jim Murray and guys like that, Jerome Holtzman, they would go out of their way. Phil Collier in San Diego would, would go out of their way to help me if I had if I had a question or not. They'd say, "Hey, wait, listen, you know, this was good. This was. Why don't you try this or you know whatever." They they didn't mind at all, and uh, not many ball players understood the nature of how good those guys were. But Steve Rogers will always go down in my memory bank. He's a smart guy, Steve Rogers. First of all. And second, he knew what what was going on besides just baseball. Um, there was a game, Montreal and the Dodgers were uh, snowed out, I think, in the playoffs in 81. They weren't going to play that night. And I was looking. I was in a, that series. That's right, of course. <laughs> I was looking to, uh, looking to do a story on Jerry Royce going against Steve Rogers, who had pissed each, against each other in the Missouri high school playoffs about, I don't know, 10, 11 years before that. You know, Royce was from Rittner High School here. And Steve Rogers was from, I think, Jeff City or someplace. And I'd talked to Royce already. And um, 
And then uh, Red Smith and Joe Durso from the New York Times and I wanted to talk to Steve Rogers, and mostly it was just Red Smith. And Red Smith was maybe 75 years old at that point, 80 years old, I don't know. He didn't write many more years. But he goes up to, to Steve Rogers and said, Steve, it's my pleasure to meet you. I'm Red Smith. They said, I know who you are. It's my pleasure to meet you. And that's, that always stuck with me. Joe, what about you? What era? What time frame? Well, I think the umpires made their biggest steps forward when Richie Phillips took over in 79. Uh, and uh, he, as we, as he just alluded to, the umpires don't miss plays. They're out there for all of them. He, he believed in backing the umpires and taking up for the umpires, and he was uh, a fire and brimstone guy. I mean, he was known for throwing chairs through windows in negotiations and stuff like that. But uh, he brought he brought the umpires back to being respected, which uh, when uh, when I first started, and I started in 76 and 77, those couple games, but uh, the office really didn't take us serious, and then in, or did they take you for granted? A little bit of both, yeah. And uh, and the big thing was that he stood up for us and he got us noticed. I mean, I can remember that we had two incidents in Pittsburgh where they had work stoppages from one of them was the groundskeepers, one of them was the ticket takers, and and so on. And we didn't cross their line. We didn't cross their picket line because we respected what the union was doing. And, uh, of course, the office called and threatened to fire us all, and and uh, they couldn't because there was a picket line. And to the the last day I worked in Pittsburgh, there were two ushers that worked on the third base side, and whenever I'd work third base, I'd walk over and shake their hand. And I heard this lady ask the one usher one day, she said, why do you always speak to him? He's the only umpire. He said he honored our picket line back in the late seventies. <laughs> <laughs> Some things they just don't forget. They don't forget. <laughs> for for you guys, and you guys have seen a lot of baseball. You're sitting in the price box, Rick, and you see that we're, we're going to have trouble here. And Joe, you're on the field, and maybe somebody kicks a play, and you realize we're going to have trouble here at some point. How do you formulate how you're going to take the next step to to make sure you get it right as far as writing a story? And Joe, for you, how do you? What's the next step you take? Because as an umpire, sometimes you can head off trouble on the field. So what's the first step you take in that situation where to make sure this thing doesn't escalate? Where Rick Hummel's knocking on your door asking you about, hey, what the hell was that all about tonight? Yeah. Well, there there'll be times where you can see things about to happen. I mean, I can remember we're in Minnesota one time, and and I walked down between and I said, "Now the third hitter in this in the lineup, they're going to throw at." <laughs> and I said, "And when they do, you eject that pitcher right now because he was a young kid, and and I knew that you know this is going to be what probably his first ejection in the big leagues." And sure enough, the guy came to bat. And they drilled him, gone. The manager came out and he said something. And I went down and said, hey, you knew that was coming. And it was Johnny Gibbons. <laughs> we threw him out, too. So, of course, he was good at getting thrown out, you know. But uh, sometimes you see it coming, and, and you can ward it off, and sometimes you can't, you know. Um, I remember uh, Greg Maddox told uh, Chuck Merriweather one day, he says, this guy's going to throw at me. 
says, and when he does, he says, uh, I don't want you to kick him out. He says, I, I deserve it because I threw it one of their guys. He's going to throw at me. And Chuck says, I don't think you understand. If he throws at you and I don't kick you out, they're going to throw me out. <laughs> <laughs> Did that happen? Did they throw at him? Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Rick, what about you? you? You've seen a whole lot. And Joe brings up an interesting point about anticipating people throwing at each other because that's normally the thing that leads to bigger issues you sat in enough games and you can kind of read the tea leaves in those situations also but how do you make sure it's it may be part of the story but maybe not the whole story well if i have the time i can i can wait until i'll give them a story for one edition and then i'll i'll fix it up for a later edition sometimes we had two more editions at night and and i knew that most of not all the umpires would give me all the time I need to, to set me straight because they, they don't have any favorites here. They, they, they don't care who wins. They, they kind of hope they play fast, but they don't care who wins. Yeah. And the uh, uh, same with me. <laughs> and, uh, um, so I knew I would get this. I, I knew they were going to be expecting to see me too. You know, maybe uh, they, they know what town they're in, which, which writers would maybe have a chance to come down or would want to come down. And so I, I felt comfortable knowing that I might be the only guy to get the real story on this if I just have to wait a little bit wait a little bit I'm glad you brought that term up. <clears throat> pace of game is something we talk so much about where did the game get off course with pace of game because I've watched you work um, umpire some games and I know you want to you want a good pace but you'd have to sit through rain you'd have to do this and, and that's not anybody's fault you know when you have weather but there's so many other things that have come into the game now that it's brought it to a screeching halt and so i'll run it by you joe first where do we where do we get off course here well the the walk-up music needs to stop you don't need to announce the guy until he steps in the batter's box because they've made it such a production and the mets were the worst for this they were the very worst of the middle 80s they would play their walk-up music, and then everybody else started doing it. So that needs to stop. You need to don't announce the hitter till he steps in the batter's box. Don't play his music till he steps in the batter's box. And then, as he steps in the batter's box, it needs to all in, and you, you get rid of eight to ten seconds on every hitter. And secondly, and uh, we I know I've talked to you about this before, but the DH has been a bad rule since 1973. And now we just implemented it in both leagues. <laughs> so that slows the game down. And, and at first look, you say, well, how does it slow the game down? Well, if Tom Seaver threw more than nine pitches to the seventh, eighth, and ninth hitter, one of those guys fouled off a two-strike pitch. Because in the old days, you went right after the seventh, eighth, and ninth hitter. And they don't do that in the American League at all. <clears throat> so that game is going to be longer than the National League game if, if everything goes the same way. So you have to, pitchers have to throw strikes. Uh, and if you look up my first game time ever in the big leagues when I had home plate was an hour and 50-something minutes. That's your best time? That was my first game. I had Necro and Andujar. Andujar was still pitching for the Astros. And uh, hour and 50 minutes, we're not in the fifth inning today. And that's, that's what's wrong. They're not the one strikes. I mean, 
And uh, somebody asked me, I, I forget who it was, he asked me, it was the best hitting team I ever saw. And he said, are you going to say the Yankees? I said, no, it was the Cincinnati Reds of the middle 70s, late 70s. Because they went up to hit. They didn't take pitches. You know, work the count. Work the count. If you threw more than three pitches to Johnny Bench, he struck out. You know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, they were hitters. They would go up there hitting the ball. I mean, Tony Perez would come to bat, and he'd, you could see the sawdust coming out the end of the bat. I mean, these guys were players, you know, and uh, it's it. The game has changed so much that they're there's they're trying to put stuff in it that doesn't belong in it. You know, there's nothing wrong with breaking up a double play, but shortstop needs to be on the bag you know you can't and for god's sake why would we put a runner on second base if a guy's got a no hitter you know harvey haddock couldn't have pitched a perfect game you're <laughs> right. gonna put a guy on second base you can't you can't do that you can't change the fabric of the game and and they're blaming the players well who's coaching them to play like this you know we need to be able to manufacture a run if we only have one inning to do it we need to be able to do that. You know, they're not they're not teaching the game as it's supposed to be played. I think that's what hurts. Commissioner, what about you? Well, You've I've, seen enough. I'm going to touch on one thing he just mentioned here. There was a game in Cincinnati, and Placido Polanco was playing, I think, shortstop for the Cardinals. And there was a play at, at second, and Polanco was in the vicinity of the bag. Joe goes, no, 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 that's safe. <laughs> and the rooster comes charging out there and said, <laughs> You know, hey, but he was around, you know, he's around there. It's his first game or whatever. And even worse, it was his first game probably. Um, to go to, I want to know what happened to the rule where, unless you fouled the ball off, you had to keep one leg in the batter's box. You, know, you couldn't be strolling around, and that and the umpires enforced that for a while, and then they stopped it. And I don't, I don't know what happened there, but I don't know how many seconds that takes off a game. But, but that's backing up your people. <clears throat> yeah. Hey, folks, I'm glad you're listening today and having a chance to listen to Joe and our favorite guests we have on. But I want to talk to you about something else. You know, it's that time of the year where guys are getting a little frisky about different things and they want to make sure they can perform on the field and in other rooms of the house, if you know what I mean. That's where Blue Chew comes in. And this is something, Joe, that we have had a chance to talk about. And Blue Chew is something that we need to let everybody know that can really help them in a lot of different areas. Well, the coolest thing about Blue Chew is it's an online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis. And the chewable tablets are there at a fraction of the cost of the other stuff. You can take them anytime, day or night, just to get yourself ready for your performance later on. Or anytime. That's the great thing about it. You don't have to set the clock. You can just go when you go. But, you know, here's the deal. So for people who've never heard of Blue Chew, let me explain to you how it works. You just go to bluechew.com. Consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll see your prescription in, in about a few days. It doesn't take that long. It's a, it's a quick turnaround, and the best part about it is you're doing everything online. Just like you're listening to this show, it's online. No doctor's office visits. No awkward conversations about what do you think or I've got a little problem. And, you know, the neatest thing is you never hear your name called in a pharmacy line at the, at the, at the pharmacy. Bluetooth tablets are made right here in the U.S., and they're prepared and shipped you direct to your door in a discreet package. So if you want more information, just check them out, bluechew.com. 
and you'll find out that you will have a lot in common with the postman after a while. You'll also find out that first impressions, they are important. But with Blue True, I can guarantee you this, it'll make a lasting impression. And that's what this is all about. So it's time to get off the couch, fellas. Let's get in the ball game. You, you're messing up. You're wasting too much time just thinking about it. Blue Chew will get you moving in the right direction. And I do mean up. You know, a great songwriter once wrote, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. And of course, you probably have never heard of him. It was me. But the Blue Chew is free when you use our promo code. Joe West at checkout. Just pay $5 in shipping and the bluechew.com promo code Joe West to receive your first month free. Visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information. And we thank Blue Chew for sponsoring this podcast. Uh, I, I can remember the last time I had uh, Big Poppy. I can remember the first time I had him too. He was a Minnesota twin. Right, yep. and he threw the ball around. He's a defensive replacement in the ninth inning in a spring training game at Tinker Field in Orlando. And uh, when he came back to first base, I said, "I hope you play in this league a long time." He said, "Oh, thank you, thank you very much." I said, "Because as long as you're in this league, I won't be the ugliest guy in it." <laughs> <laughs> Did he so, enjoy that repartee? <laughs> so years, know what to say? After years that. later, he's announced his retirement. So he comes to bat in like May of that year. He says, I, I have something to tell you. I said, I don't want to hear it. Get in the box. You play too slow. He said, no, no, just one thing. I said, you and the Yankees play too slow. Get in the box. He said, just let me tell you. I said, okay, tell me one thing and then get in the box. He says, you know i retiring. I said, I don't care if you retire. Get in the box. He said, no, no, no. One. Okay, tell me what you got to tell me. He says, next year. You be the ugliest guy in the league. <laughs> he remembered after all those years. <laughs> That's good. I like that. What else do you see is slowing it down? Well, strike one, strike two. You know why? Why can't a pitcher just throw his best shot in there, and the hitter hits it? Fine. If he doesn't hit it, throw the same pitch again. Um, we don't need to have three and two. Uh, we, for sure, we don't need to have. 0-2, become 3-2. and two. But it's 0-2, let's go 0-3, next hitter. Yeah, it's, it, it's crazy. You know, if you go back and look at the better pitchers, they challenge the hitters, you know. And there's another thing about the American League and the National League. Because of the DH, there's, there's no gap in the lineup where, okay, the ninth hitter's an out. So they don't go after anybody. They pitch everybody like they're the third, fourth, and fifth hitter. In the National League, and uh, which was basically a fastball league, the pitchers would go at people. You know, the Seavers, Carlton, uh, Kuzman, Matlock. I mean, these guys, the Force brothers, they'd go at you. You know, the American League, they're nibble outside here. Oh, it's this far outside. Oh, where's that pitch? You know, it's outside. Don't over the plate. <laughs> I remember. I remember uh, Gaylord Perry one time. He said, "Where's that pitch?" I said. Throw it over the plate. He said, if I do, they'll hit it. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, um, you both touch on something. Why is it guys can't throw strikes? I mean, we have some walkathons in baseball that just, it baffles me at this level. This is supposed to be the best of the best. And you have people out there who can't throw strikes. And that's all they're hired to do is throw strikes. We don't ask you to hit anymore. We're going to actually do anything else but throw strikes. Why is that? 
I guess they're afraid of giving up home runs now. I, I, I don't know. Uh, most of the parks are not big parks anymore. They're, they're smaller parks. And, and Joe touched on a point before that most of those American League parks were sm- smaller and older stadiums, too, where you, you couldn't make a mistake in Boston or Detroit or someplace without or Yankee Stadium to right field and without costing you two or three or four runs. You know, the Metrodome was a shooting gallery. Some, some other places were pretty small. And now the National League has also small parks like that. <clears throat> Luckily, they decided not to make it any smaller in St. Louis, which I'm, I was happy to see that that yeah. thumbs down. But I think they're afraid of of getting you know of having the ball hit. Well, isn't the if you have a Gold Glove defense? Like the Cardinals will take a little different approach about this. I think they walk fewer people than most because they got five Gold Glovers out there. If you hit it, somebody's going to catch it. Yeah, this is a unique sport for a lot of reasons. But one is you got to hit a round <clears throat> ball with a cylindrical bat, and then you have to hit it square. <laughs> and then you have to hit it where they can't catch it. So it's, with all that real estate, it, they yeah. have to patrol. Yeah, but it's funny you talk about the ballparks. I mean, I can remember when they built the Coors Field in Denver, where they was going to, you know, the new stadium had the big backdrop in the outfield, and, and Bob Gephardt said, this, "This is a nightmare." I said, "What do you mean it's a nightmare? It's a beautiful park." He says, "Well, they." The advertisers thought they were going to get to put ads on that hitter's eye out there. I had to tell them they can't, couldn't do that. He said, and then we did everything right about the, the the stadium. We didn't have to build handicapped parking. We're going to park the handicapped people in the players' lot, and we're going to roll their wheelchairs right up to the left field fence. He said, and everything went fine. We didn't have to build all that extra stuff, and we saved a lot of money and stuff until one of our guys hit a home run and 13 people got up out of wheelchairs and ran for the ball. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. (laughs) All right, so, again, you guys have seen a lot, done a lot. Give me the best ballpark to work in for both of you guys. Do you have favorites? I think the most uh, unique park, and it's one of our oldest, is Dodger Stadium because it's symmetrical. There's no tricks, no nooks and crannies. There's no... High wall, low wall. It's uh, <clears throat> it was built for baseball, just baseball alone, and uh, and as we discussed it, they even had a gas station at center field. So uh, I think that our second best ballpark is another old one, is in Kauffman Stadium in Kansas City. Same thing. It's symmetrical. There's no nooks and crannies, no trick things, and I think what some of these designers today have tried to do is is to make these parks look nostalgic. All they did is make them look old before their time. You know, Dodger Stadium was built and opened in 62, I think, and it's still our best symmetrical ballpark. And uh, that's not my favorite park because it's hard to get to but in traffic. But no doubt about that. Uh, they used to ask me, said, what was your favorite stadium? I used to say Wrigley Field because they didn't have lights. But then they put up those lights. So now I used to make happy hour. Now I can't make last call. They play so long. <laughs> you can barely get, make breakfast if you get caught in the traffic out there. Uh, what, what's your favorite park to work in, though? I mean, you mentioned the ones that are – well, I should take that back. What's a park that you just say, nah, I'm not sure if they did this right? Well, you have to realize that these older ballparks, like uh, in Boston, uh, they had to build that park where it would fit. Mm-hmm. Because that's all the land that they had to deal with. But there's no reason that every new ballpark can't be like Pittsburgh's. There's no reason that every new ballpark can't be like the one in New York the, where the Mets play. Uh, I don't think they did any favors by rebuilding Yankee Stadium because it's the same ballpark. You know, it's just 
has the monuments in a different spot. Uh, but that's and that's not criticizing anything for what they tried to do because I think what they wanted to do was build more space for the spectators and more things for the spectators to do. The park in San Diego is ingenious because it has a place for you to take your kids to play if they don't want to watch the game. You know, so they're they're doing a lot of things differently to try to get more people involved. I think one of our biggest problems today is we don't play the World Series in the daytime. I think that we're losing groups of people that would follow and love baseball because they can't watch it when they're kids because they had to go to bed before the game well, starts. And the games take forever to yeah. play also. <clears throat> Who's going to take care of your family if something happens to you? What would they do without your income? If you don't have a plan, you need to go to GoliathLife.com. Get a quick quote for more than 20 carriers. You don't even have to leave the house. If you need a medical exam, they'll send somebody to your house or office. You're in total control. You pick the rates, you pick the payments, you pick the terms. You're in total control, but it gives you and your family peace of mind. What if something happens to your income? Hurry to GoliathLife.com. All right, you know, I want to ask you something. I want to come back to you, Rick, here in a second. Ground rules. We see the guys come out first game of series. Umpires talk to the, the two managers about the ground rules. What's the quirkiest ground rule in baseball? The quirkiest? Yeah. <laughs> What's the one ground? When you get to that city, you say, oh, I got to explain it to the new guy over here because oh. the, he, he's never heard this Tampa before. Tampa Bay, sure. maybe, where the ball hits up and the rafters up there. That could that. be, <clears throat> yeah. If it hits this ring, it's in play. If it hits that ring, it's a home run. <laughs> yeah, we we have that problem. One time, uh, Tampa Bay had for years played and played and played, and the ball would hit the roof, and the opposing team couldn't catch it, right? So it was about three years ago, I guess, maybe more than that, because Frank Robinson was still our boss, and uh, they wanted to have a do-over. If it hits, if it hits the roof, it's dead, and we'll do it over and Frank's listened to all the umpires' comments, and he looked at me and said, "What do you think, Joe?" I said, "We're not doing that." Kavish, <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Well, I like working conditions. I mm-hmm. don't care so much about the parks. And Pittsburgh is also my favorite park, except for it being so high from the field. The it's press almost box. they forgot to put the press right. box there. But but there's also nobody in the press box when you're there. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Plenty of room to let alone set. fans. I, I take up a lot of space so I, I have a lot of reading materials you know research and so forth and I, I can take three or four seats up if I so choose and it's easy to get down to the clubhouse because there's nobody going down the elevator or going in the clubhouse much anyway. Oh my I remember Bill Verdon and Mazeroski <laughs> being there one day and they and Clint Hurdle let them sit in the dugout right. When he didn't okay it with the office, right? So I'm umpiring the game, and I finish the game, and I come off the field, and I hear that they, the commissioner's office had called and kicked Mazeroski and Bill Verdon out of the dugout, right? Well, this is during the game? They were in there during the game. They were in uniform, dressed like a pirate, and they're sitting on, on the bench. And I, I mean, it was just a courtesy to let. And uh, so the commissioner's office saw him on TV and sent a message to get him out of there. They have no business being in there. So... The next day I go to the park, I found out about it. And I went by the clubhouse, and I, I, I sent the clubhouse attendant in to get Verdon and Mazeroski. And uh, they came out, you know, kind of hat in hand. They didn't know what I was going to say. I said, I want you to know that I had nothing to do with that yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, most challenging place to work out of? Well, it used to be Wrigley Field because they didn't have any any seating up there. Plus, you had to climb all those ramps. They didn't have an elevator for a long time either. You'd go up the stairs and up the ramps, and, and then the only chance you had to, to get there a little faster was if you got there before Harry Carey did, They would. I knew a, a girl who would take me up in his golf cart <laughs> before he came to the park. Once he came to the park, it was all him. And they they had that catwalk there, and the restroom was you had to kind of go like a walkway and the fan everybody could see the fan and when harry go to the bathroom the fans will go nuts you know they, they keep an eye on him just hey harry hey harry hey harry's going to the bathroom and, <laughs> but that was the work and then you took so long you had to go all the way down through through the stands and then across the field and up the ramp up the stairs to the visiting clubhouse so this great 1984 game when Sandberg hit the two home runs off Bruce Suter in the in the ninth. McGee hit for the cycle. In the eleventh, McGee hit for the cycle, drove in six runs, and so when, as a visiting rider, you had to go down and maybe sit in the box seats for the last inning or so, so you could get on the field, get upstairs, and get your interviewing done. Well, I'm sitting there, and the Cardinals had two runs, and Sandberg homers off suitor to tie the game i thought well i'm stuck here for a while i can't no reason to go back upstairs now i might as well sit this out and there's a big fat guy sitting in front of me of course he's got a beer and then two innings later sandberg homers again and this guy goes ah and he dumps his beer all over my head <laughs> throws it over the back of me and i'm thinking i should be mad about this i was kind of but what am i going to do i mean he's enjoying the game he's paid his money for the, the seats and the beer so I'll just kind of ride it out and, and, and stink the rest of the day. And then the Cubs won the game in the inning after that. But I I didn't envision that happening in, in the inning or so I expected to spend down there. It turned into four innings and a, and a ruined sport coat or whatever I was wearing. <laughs> and and then uh, Suter wasn't in the best of moods either after the game. <laughs> yeah, he didn't want to talk. <laughs> give, me a Joe, Joe, give me a Joe West moment. I guess the first one would be in the 88 playoffs when Jay Howell had some had some uh, <laughs> pine tar in his, I believe it was pine tar, was it not, in yeah. his glove? And, and you happened upon that. I believe Harry Wendelset was involved, and I believe Bill White was involved. Am I correct here? And the, and the, no, Giamatti was on the, okay, Giamatti was on, the, and you had to take the glove over to show it to him on the first base box seat area there. Yeah. Oh, well, uh, Davey Johnson came out, and he says he's got something on his glove. I said, you're not really asking me to check. He said, I came from upstairs. I got no choice. I got to ask you to check his glove. He says, got something on the string. I get out to the mound, and he's got pine tar all over the inside of his glove. <laughs> and I'm going, this hmm. is not good. <laughs> and so now that I call in Harry Winnelstead, he's the crew chief, and he's in left field. Yeah. Right. I call him in. So Harry takes the glove, puts it on like he's a fielder, and then starts to, ah, that's not too bad. <laughs> and Rick, Rick Dempsey's going, yeah, it's not too bad, is it? And, of course, Paul Runge peeled him out, and I said, Harry, 
one of us is going to have to kick him out of the game. Don't you still have that school in Florida? He says, I got this. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> so then I give Harry credit. He walked right over and handed it to the league president. The, 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 the said, yeah. there, there, there'll be no chain of custody here. So, <laughs> And here was the, the, I knew where Joe was standing, so I called Joe at the hotel. He said, well, you can't use my name with all this now. But, but, but <laughs> So I knew what was going on there. <laughs> Foreign substance. That's not the first time we've had a moment like that in baseball. No. Were you involved in any other ones? Well, how about the day after I broke the record? You know, the guy had stuff on his hat. Giovanni Gallegos. He said, uh, you take the hat off, you can pitch. You don't take the hat off, you're gone. (laughs) (laughs) And Schilt got got really mad. (laughs) That's when he called out the the game for this dirty little secret after that game. That, well, they were already negotiating that with the office. I think what happened is this kind of got ahead of the ahead of schedule, and uh, because the players' association had already talked to the office about policing it, and uh, in fact, I think Dan Halem got in a lot of trouble because I did this before they let anybody know what was going on. <laughs> so. <laughs> And uh, in fact, Tony Clark accused Dan Halem of jumping the gun. <laughs> so, I thought one of Joe's best calls. I was watching this game on TV. Is when he called A Rod out for getting his elbow up while he was running down the foul line on a ball that he would have been safe on, and was called safe on initially. And then, and then you, said, yeah, nope. he, he knocked the ball out of the pitcher's glove, yeah, yeah. and uh, with his free hand, yeah. And uh, and then when I asked Randy Marsh if he saw it because they were. All kinds of players around first base, and Randy said, "I didn't see it. I didn't see him do that." And the right field umpire, Jeff Kellogg, came and said, "Yeah, he he used his hand." He said, "Oh, I said well, we're going to have to call him out and put the runner back on first. Well, Jeter scored on the play <laughs> from first. Yeah. So when we called A Rod out, he went like you know like, and uh, of course uh, Joe Torre wanted he wanted obstruction. <laughs> <laughs> I said, it can't be obstruction when he hit the ball. <laughs> anyway, so what, they you... threw everything in the world at us. Oh, yeah. They well, Somebody threw their car keys at the third base umpire. It was a BMW, too. We should have gone <laughs> around. We should have drove it home. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, and, and the thing about you mentioned Joe Torrey, when he was managing the Mets, you had a few run-ins with him, and suddenly he becomes your boss how many oh, years yeah. later? <laughs> yeah. He was, uh, he was my boss for a few years. Yeah. But um, – and he was – we were talking about that earlier, you know – as a player and a manager, he was tough to deal with. But when he was our boss, I mean, I know. he understood what we were trying to do, and he was trying to do the same thing. You know, he was, he was good for the game. Are you feeling stuck making minimum payments on your credit card debt? SaveWithConrad.com can help, and you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Oh, and did I mention no house payments for two months? Get rid of your credit card debt and lower your monthly payments right now at SaveWithConrad.com. Well, I just I want to just pay my respects to Joe for always being available, always being honest. You could ask him a question and you would get an answer maybe you weren't expecting all the time, which is the best <laughs> the best kind of answer. You know, eighty percent of the questions we ask, we know what the other guy's going to parrot right back at us, and we don't we don't argue, we just write it down. Yeah. Well, Joe will, will say something, and you you start scratching your head, and you're thinking, well, yeah, he makes a point there. I, I don't <laughs> completely understand it, but there is there, he does have a, a side of it that I, I should investigate here. And he's always been supportive of, of me and, and a lot of the writers that took the time to, 
to get to know him and everybody else that that has has worked there. They, I mean, we become friends, you know. And, and I didn't when I started this business. I didn't know you could even talk to an umpire, let alone be his friend. You know, were you involved in the Julian Tavares? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I mean, if there was anybody who had a billboard or an ad to say "Come check my cap," it had to be him. <laughs> I mean, it was like an email to you said, "Hey, come, come check my cap." Do you have to be asked by the manager or the opposition to, to check somebody, or can you just Not, look at a guy and say, can, "Hey, listen, can, this is." Yeah, you can do it before anybody asks, but normally you make them make the first move yeah Tavares that was uh, the manager of the Pirates asked us to check his hat so they had the history of something goes way back and that's I think that's why that was Lloyd we're, McClendon wasn't it, it was yeah, McClendon, they, yeah they had history with Duncan Duncan, Duncan and he got, and into, Duncan a got fight, into fighting and, yeah, right before the game one yeah, day Pittsburgh yeah oh, well, you, I knew it was something I didn't know what it was yeah, yeah they, they had some history hey for you fighting um we we talked about a little bit about guys throwing at each other. When it breaks out, what is the manager? What is the umpire's responsibility? I mean, we well, don't see you can, there breaking it up if you don't. If, if you, you can break it up right away, you do that. But if you can't handle twenty five or thirty people at a time, so if you can't break it up initially when it starts, then you're to back off and take names, you know. But uh, I got a I got a cute story I need to tell you about sports writers. It was it was over. Uh, a situation that happened years ago. And uh, I was playing this golf tournament, and Ron Swoboda's there. You remember Ron? Sure. And then he, after he quit playing, he did a little bit of announcing for the Mets, and then he got this <coughs> cake job in New Orleans as a sports broadcaster for the entire city. So he's got a real good job in New Orleans. So he's playing in this tournament that uh, Wayne, Wayne Garrett had put on in Sarasota. And he calls me, and he says, i got to tell you this story. He said, I only hit two grand slams in my life. One of them was in Cincinnati in the old Crosley Field. And the, the second one I hit, hit a piece of plywood behind the center field fence and bounced back on the field. And the umpire left it in place. So I not only didn't get a home run, I lost two more RBIs. And I only got a single out of it because I ain't too fast, you know. And he's telling me, he said, I figured after the game, every reporter from New York would be in my locker to talk to me about this home run that I didn't get. But they didn't come to my locker. They went to Yogi's locker because Yogi got kicked out for arguing with the umpire. And uh, so I heard Yogi's conversation. They said, Yogi, what would you say to the umpire to get kicked out? He said, if you couldn't hear that, you're blind. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and I, I chuckled, and, and he said, that's not the funny part of this story. He said, those New York writers knew that's how Yogi talked. They didn't crack a smile. They just kept right on writing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I want to ask you about the best of the best. Uh, best hitter you ever saw on the field, best hitter you ever saw step in the batter's box. Well, because he could hit the ball that was inside, I'd say it was Bonds. Barry Bonds. Rick, what about you? Are we talking power or average or, or some kind of combination? We'll get to, yeah. we'll get to average. Yeah. We'll get to power here in a minute. Yeah, I guess maybe Tony Gwynn just for p putting the ball in play and hitting three fifty or three sixty or three seventy. I I always enjoyed going to the park every day, and he'd be on the field working way ahead of regular batting practice, taking you know hot 
it wasn't real hot in San Diego, but it was hot enough he'd be working up a sweat. But uh, I, I will say, I don't know where you're going to go with the next part of this question, but I want to say that the best complete player that I saw for a long time was Mike Schmidt because he was a great defensive player. And he get hit home runs and drive in runs. I don't care what his average was; doesn't make any difference. Yeah. You know, he he was the the best two way player I saw for a really really long time. So I was going. My next question would be, who was the best power hitter who could hit for power and wasn't going to be on course to strike out two hundred times in a season? I mean, we we see guys now, <clears throat> and that's all they do is either home run or strikeout. Who was a guy who really understood how to how to swing for power? Well, Schmidt did, but he also did strike out a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. he struck out like a hundred times, which was an outrageous number then. You, you know? should have seen Aaron play. I did. I did a little bit, but not enough. Hank to, was. Yeah. And the, the coolest thing about Hank was he hit with power both ways. He hit it to right center, left center. He'd he'd hit where the ball was pitched, and uh, and of course, I only had him at the very end, and it was just a few few games. But uh, he was. If you were going to, I mean, how do you? Guy hit 700 home runs, <laughs> and he's got one more that he hit here that didn't count. You know, that's he, right. He stepped out of batter's Kurt, box. Kurt Simmons threw him a changeup, and Hank couldn't wait for it to get there. And he said, "I'll take, the, I'll take it and run up a little bit." And he was out of, you know, out of the box, and he hit it at the old Bush, the first Bush Stadium. Joe, Joe Morgan used to and, ask me, "Who's the best player you ever saw?" And uh, I would always say, "Well, I had Willie Mays in an old timers game," and I'd have to say it was Willie. He said, well, why did you pick him? I said, because if I pick somebody active, somebody else is going to get mad. <laughs> <laughs> Good move for your part. Who, who was the best play, overall all-around player? You mentioned Bonds as a hitter. Who was the best overall player? I mean, he could do everything on a consistent basis. Well, I, Schmidt was a pretty good runner, too. I don't know. I, I, I'd have to go through some other people. I mean – for 10 years, Albert Pujols was the best hitter we've seen here in a long time. You know, he wasn't a great runner, 11 years actually, but he could hit for power and hit for average. Uh, I, I didn't get to see, I didn't get, I got to be Musial's friend later in life, but I only saw him play a few games as a, as a, as a teenager, and he wasn't at the, at the top of his game then. Um, I did see Willie Mays a little bit, um, again, not in his salad days. Uh, so I, I got to think. Uh, I'm going to stick with Schmidt. Bench was a wonderful player, but he wasn't wasn't a speed. We're talking five tool guys mm-hmm. now, and we, and, and I, there are so few of those that come to mind. You know, Trout. How about a, Bonds? I, let uh, me give you a name and see what you think of this name. And nobody will ever even <clears throat> know him. Caesar Sedano. Yeah. Oh yeah. We caught. We had him at the end of his career in St. Louis. He he won two World Series with the team he didn't play for. I mean, he won here and he won in uh, Cincinnati, I think. But when he played with the Astros, he could do everything. He uh, and he had, as Mike said, he had just enough left when he got here in 1985. To he had 434 the last month with like five six home runs and knocked in 20 some runs because Clark was hurt, so he was playing and. Uh, he was that good that he could recall some of that stuff from the past that where he was really, really good yeah. and, and display that for a month. Could he have done it for six months at that stage? No. But but he could – and we'll never quite know what numbers he could have put up because he played in that Astrodome. We, you really had to crank one to get it, it out of there. It was 390 in the gap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you had to get a running start to yeah. be able to And there was, there was no wind at home runs there because there was no wind. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
for an umpire who had the best control you ever saw? Well, I, I've always said they asked me who's the best pitcher I ever saw. I'd always say Seaver, and I'd say he's Greg Maddox with about 10 more miles an hour. <laughs> and, uh, and that's how I kind of looked at him. Two of the most intimidating pitchers didn't have the control that Seaver had were J.R. Richard and, uh, and Randy Johnson. They were very intimidating, but I don't think they were quite the pitcher that Seaver was. Um, and you might have somebody else. Uh, oh, J.R. Richard was the guy that, that he would be intimidating just watching him from the press box. <laughs> you know, and, and when they had that rotation, I mean, Houston would, would screw you up for a week. They'd have Ryan and Richard, but they would throw, like ne- put Joe Necro right in the middle of that. Necro you know? was the second. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. they'd make sure they wouldn't have the two power guys in succession. They'd have Necro throw yeah. and he, he throw had a fastball but he would throw mostly knuckleballs yeah. Phil threw all knuckleballs but you know you bat against Ryan one day and, and then suddenly here comes Necro Dipsy doing it up there then you battle with that then here comes the other guy the third game <laughs> yeah well they and hard pitch for them then too yeah yeah was like it was uh, with them. when they when they traded Ryan over there he wasn't the first starter and he wasn't a second starter right because Necro was the second so JR was the first starter and then Necro was the second starter I mean when Nolan Ryan's your third and fourth starter, you're pretty good. <laughs> you got that right. And, you know, he really can learn how to pitch on the back end of his career. Remember, he was really a thrower yeah. who was around the plate, but he learned how to pitch really when he got to Houston and, and things really turned around for him. All right, it, it may be obvious. Everybody talks about Mariano Rivera being the greatest closer because he has the most saves. But let's go to, to a point in the game Maybe it's the seventh inning, or maybe it's the eighth inning with two out or one out. Let's just let's start. Eighth inning, one out, runner in scoring position, game on the line. Who's the guy you bring in in that situation? Then you get the eighth, and then you wipe out the ninth if you can. Who's that guy? Because we've kind of gotten away from that. You know, the, the closer now is a – I can only pitch when the bases are empty and starting the ninth inning. I can't come in and do anything else for you. So – how Who's, do you pick anybody better than Gossage? That was my guy. Yeah, yeah. Saying that we're unanimous on that. Yeah, I, I don't know how you. I mean, he'd come in and pitch two, three innings or whatever he needed. You know, why have we gotten away from that? Rick? He's well, he's a trooper. I mean, these guys today, and and you you have a lot of influence with with agents today too. You know, it's uh, um, this agent's going to say, well, I don't want my guy to pitch more than one inning. You know, well, that, how's he helping the team? You know, we've gotten away from team playing or playing what's best for the team to what's best for my client. You know, that that hurts. Yeah. You shouldn't be influenced by some guy that's in California or some guy that's in New York determining my guy can only pitch two more pitches. That's that's not right. Well, the other thing that comes into the game now, to, to take, piggyback on what you said, because the agents read the numbers, and that's what this is all about, the analytics. How much of analytics had an impact on umpiring? Well, we're graded on every pitch we, we call now. You know, they're talking about putting the machine in to call balls and strikes. Well, they proved that that machine misses 7% of the pitches. We don't have an umpire that scores less than 95 on their zone evaluation. So we're 2% better than the machine. And when we call a pitch, we call it a ball or a strike. When that machine misses a pitch, it doesn't call anything. <laughs> So what are we going to do? Have another do-over? <laughs> Rick, what about you? Well, I, 
I thought for the, the length of his career, I mean, I, I put Rivera in a different category. When you talk about the best of the best at any position for Hall of Fame, whether it's shortstops or first basemen or catchers or whatever, you get a healthy debate like who the best shortstop was. Is it Ozzie Smith? Is it Ripken? Is it, you know, this Ernie Banks when he played shortstop was an offensive shortstop. Honus Wagner, we never saw him play, but a great shortstop, I presume. And <laughs> um, But nobody ever debates Mariano Rivera's credibility as the best closer. But the one I saw the most over the years, and you guys did too, is that Lee Smith was good year after year after year, and he played for about nine or ten different ball clubs. And what if, how, how much better would he have been if he'd ever wanted to throw inside? He always wanted to paint that slider on the black, and he, didn't, he never brushed anybody back. He never hit anybody. He was toying with them. Yeah. Uh, and when he pitched in Chicago before they had the lights, well, but he come in about four thirty. You, man, that was tough on the yeah. hitter. Four thirty in the fall, you have no chance. Yeah. But he pitched for like eight or nine, ten different clubs, and yes, he was not good for pace of game because he we kind of stole in. I asked him about that one time. He says, "Look," he says, "You ever see anybody run in to face Mike Schmidt?" <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing that. <laughs> You have dealt with managers. You have dealt with managers. Give me the, the, the two managers, or maybe it's three, that A, knew the rules, B, knew how to manage where they would make moves as you as a writer, Rick, and you as an umpire, Joe, would say, eh, it's a pretty good move here at this time of the game, and really understood how to communicate. Uh, because there's a way to talk to an umpire and there's a way to talk to a writer and then there's a way that probably won't get you what you want if you go in the other direction. So give me three guys that stood out that knew the, and also knew the game. Well, well the, I got to go Whitey for all of the things you just said. He was a great communicator with his players because he was a bench player. Uh, he, I'd see him talking to the backup catchers or infielders or outfielders every day, and I'd ask him about that, You'd ask him about their families and stuff. He said, look, I like to see make my bench players aware that I'm, I'm I know how important they are to the team. I don't have to talk to the stars. I want to talk to the guys when he, when I call on this guy in the sixth inning, he's ready to go. You know, I think Whitey was good with the umpires. He didn't argue with an umpire unless he really had some kind of beef. And with the reporters, he was creme de la creme above anybody else. I mean, he would be they would be blown out, and he'd get in there and say, "Well." Good thing it only counts as one game, you know. It'd be, it'd be, it'd be funny, and and he would, he had, uh, he'd talk about like when the when the Dodgers would be in town or Philadelphia, which had a large press crew, and he'd say, you know, guys come to my office the first night, you go to the Missouri Bar and Grill afterward, and the next time you come in, you're not asking as many questions as you did the night before. We're out with Hummel, you know. And then the third day, the third time you come in, you're all drunk up. I'm asking all the questions. <laughs> Who else is on your list? Well, LaRusso would be on there yeah. for I think he's good with the rules, although I'll never forget the first time he managed in the National League was in ninety six and he went to Atlanta and he was trying to make a double switch, but he didn't do it right. He he didn't go to the umpire first. He but he went to the mound and he then he told and Randy Marsh said, No, no, you you cannot do that. <laughs> that that guy's still in the game. Yeah. <laughs> but those those 
Oh, and, and maybe from from another st- another manager that I would admire over the years, I guess, would be Bochi um, from San Diego, who seemed to have a real good rapport with his players. I think with the umpires. Uh, yeah. yeah. Do you find that that catchers are are easier to deal with because they actually have a pretty good idea what the strike zone is? Well, yeah. Not only that, they're in on every pitch. Yeah. You know, there's this, they're even more tuned to the game than a pitcher. Because the pitcher does his job and then he leaves. You know, it's the catcher's in for everything. Um, but the guy, and I think we touched on him earlier, Dick Williams, was brilliant. <clears throat> he won everywhere he went. But he was a hired gun because he was only going to be good enough for four or five years. And then he'd wear out his welcome because he was tough to get along with, you know. But um, he, he was one of the better managers I ever saw, and he'd get kicked out every year. It just <laughs> and I mean, and that was part of his gig, you know. But he's the one that put Montreal on the map. He brought in Cromartie and Dawson, Valentine, and he put them right now. He said, "You're my guys," you know. And you got to remember, back then you had to earn your way onto the team. He said, "That's the guy I want in center field." Not, made Andre Dawson his guy, you know. Um, and I don't know that I've seen a better throwing arm than Ellis Valentine. But he had, he took them to the playoffs, and they fired him. Like like Fanning took over. Yeah. Fanning was actually managed the playoffs. They fired Williams maybe a month ago in the season. I know? don't think it was that much. But <clears throat> maybe not. Yeah, he <clears throat> uh, won, and that's when the Dodgers Monday hit the home run to beat him. Right, that's yeah. right, right. But uh, I don't I don't know <clears throat> that, that there was anybody better than him. I think Whitey was good. I think Larusa is good. I think uh, Jim Leland sure was excellent. Uh, and Leland was the kind of guy that would never put his guy in a position to fail. I think that's the sign of a good manager. Yeah. Though. He mean, would he would never put a yeah. guy in, but he'd always put his guy in where he thought he's going to succeed or he had a good chance of doing the right thing or the right job. You know, he's and um, he's an, he was a catcher, he's another journeyman catcher. Yeah, you know. I heard a story about Leland the other day involving Craig Council when he managed him in in Miami, and they were going through a drill one day, and Council was in the cage, and there, Leland says, "Okay, uh, guy in first, you know." one out or whatever, and, and Council bunts or something and gets him to second base. You know, okay, guy in second. Nobody out. Council hits a ground ball to the right side and gets him to third. Now, that was a guy in third. One out. And Council hits a trip, tri- tipper, topper right back to the mound. The guy in third doesn't score. And Leland says, my fault. I should have pinch hit for you. <laughs> <laughs> you have anything else for Joe? I mean, for Rick? Well, I, you know, all the, all the places you went and every, everybody you've met over the years and, uh, and the, being, you know, inducted in the Hall of Fame, how did that feel for you? It was, um, I learned this 15 years ago now, and I, I, it didn't take me long to figure out, well, it took me a while to figure it out, but it didn't take me <laughs> long to, to, to understand why people were so excited about they were they were more excited about this than I was and I was excited about it but yeah. but the Cardinal fans are still coming up to me and asking me for autographs and signing balls and stuff for something that I I, I did or you know was was done for me 15 years ago and I I will always appreciate their their love of the game and their their appreciation for what kind of work I did and I, that part surprised me uh, the other thing about the Hall of Fame just overwhelms you you know. Um, I remember going in the year 
that Tony Gwynn and Ripken went in. And <clears throat> it was going to rain that day, they thought. And so Dale Petrosky was the head of the Hall of Fame, and he's on the bus going over to the Clark Center for the ceremony. And he says, we may have to adjust the schedule a little bit. And, and uh, Denny Matthews of the Kansas City Royals was going to be the, run the broadcast award. Now it's going to be the writing award, and there was going to be Gwen and Ripken, who ordinarily went last, you know, and the writers were out of the way first. So he says, we, we may have to put you guys, change the order and get Gwen and Ripken up there first, and, and, and you guys will be, and, and maybe you won't speak at all. If we don't have enough time for the national TV, maybe you won't get to speak at all. And I thought, wow. That's a load off my, I, I was nervous about this. And I said, wait a minute now, I've been preparing this speech for a year. I want to give this speech. Well, as it turns out, it didn't rain. Uh, Ripken had a very choreographed ceremony that somebody gave a rose to his wife in the audience there. And, and Tony Gwynn, I'd seen the day before in the, in the hotel, and he had a bunch of papers, and he's just scratching things out. I said, what are you doing? He says, I'm making my notes for the, I'm spitballing my notes for the for the uh, speech tomorrow, you know, talking points. We got up there and he had all these papers and he got them mis <laughs> misshapen and they're out of order and stuff. And he had a rough time getting organized for this. But anyway, that he he gets through it, and um, I get up finally and I speak for six minutes and twelve seconds, which I you know I think appreciated by everybody who was there. And and uh, <laughs> I get back to the hotel. <laughs> And Harmon Killebrew was getting off the elevator, and he says, great speech, great speech. I said, you just liked it because it was short. He says, yeah, 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 but great speech. <laughs> <laughs> All right, final question before we get out of here. We, we have Joe West, the record setter. He's seen it all. He's done it all. I have game <clears throat> seven of the World Series, and I need one good umpiring crew. Give me my umpiring crew. And we'll have – we'll say Joe – is Joe's going to be a spectator? He's not going to be part of. It. Well, Joe, Joe will be on my crew because I've always found that Joe will make the call that a lot of guys will not do. make. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, you see guys that, I mean, they're good umpires, but they won't make the call because it's going to be a big storm come up afterward. Joe doesn't care about that. So we'll put Joe on the field. Yeah. So Joe's part of the crew. Yeah. So give me the rest of them. Hmm. You have the line. You have the lines. I, 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 I like I like Jeffrey Kellogg's on my favorite umpires over the years. I thought he was a good, solid umpire, very good. I like, um, hmm, Jerry Crawford was one of my favorites. John Kibler was one of my favorites. Jerry Davis is one of my favorites, uh, and um, I I noticed this the other day while watching an exhibition game that uh, does Greg Gibson ever take his hands out of his pockets when he's doing third base? <laughs> He'd be one of my umpires, but but what? <laughs> you notice? You ever notice that his hands are always in his pockets? So he's just sitting on third base down there. <laughs> but he'd be in there. But there's so many of them. John McSherry. Uh, if you wanted, you know, a lighter moment, Eric Gregg, he'll, he'll do something. He'll take on the mascot or something. But uh, but uh, I think Jeffrey Kellogg would be my my number two guy in there because he he just seemed to have control of the game and all the situations inherent to it the hall of fame writer rick hummel is our guest on 5460 the joe west podcast commission as we love to say thank you for your time sir thank you what does 5460 mean by the way that's the amount of games that joe west umpire oh that's right okay 
Well, there was some question about that now, too. I mean, much, much debate about that that year. And there was quite a bit of difference in what one person said and what somebody else said. But this is the... Well, they left out the playoff games and the All-Star games. Oh. So there's 135 more you have to add to that. So that'll be 55-90. That's another show, I guess. So you're well, the, you're well ahead of the pack. So the 55-95 show will be later, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's Rick Almo. And for Joe West, I'm Mike Claiborne. We thank you for listening to the Joe West Podcast, 5460. My baby took me to the ballpark to see a baseball game Lord, it had to be at least 99 in the shade I was stealing a glance at some tight short pants Just as I turned my head Baby grabbed me by the arm and this is what she said If you cheat on me, you'll be out at home If I catch you playing the field, you're gonna be long gone You better play it safe and don't do me wrong Cause if you cheat on me, you'll be out at home You've been listening to 5460, the Joe West Podcast, here on the Podcast Heat Network. Make sure to subscribe and don't miss an episode each and every Monday. We'll talk to you next week. She's checking all the signs While I'm enjoying two of the great American pastimes It's fouling up my nerve watching all these curves Remembering what she said to me And if I get caught looking it's gonna be strike three If you cheat on me You'll be out at home If I catch you playing the field You're gonna be long gone You better play it safe And don't do me wrong Cause if you cheat on me Well you'll be out at home If you cheat on me You'll be out at home If I catch you playing the field You're gonna be long gone You better play it safe And don't do me wrong Cause if you cheat on me Well you'll be out at home If you cheat on me You'll be out at home